And yeah. it's, it really, really gives you, like you said, if people stay very closed in their own little community mm-hmm. and they don't mean anybody different than they are, then it, be, it makes it, and I think this is kind of, is legitimate. It makes it much harder to understand people who are different from you if you never have that exposure. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. The Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford is a practical theologian and Episcopal priest native to Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Ledford worked as a civil rights attorney for over 30 years, including as an ACLU cooperating attorney on constitutional matters prior to her ordination. She advocates for the administration of the sacraments and public pious practices to empower progressive Christian political theology in the public square. Dr. Ledford exhorts progressive Christians to exercise their First Amendment guarantees as part of a collective interface voice calling for more compassionate approaches to our social crisis. She is an award-winning documentary photographer and specializes in fine art portraiture, and she has completed industrial area foundations community organizing training. Hey, thank you so much for coming back to Diversity Dish. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today, who is the Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford. Hello, Marsha. How are you? I'm very good, Sadie. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. And as I was looking through your website and everything that you do, I'm really excited about what you're going to share with everyone today. But before we jump into that whole conversation, I want to ask you my first question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what are you passionate about right now? Right now, I am passionate about immigration reform. I was just in D.C. last week with a delegation from Michigan United, which is a community organizing entity here in Michigan. I volunteered with them for nearly 10 years. And uh, we went to address members of Congress, particularly our two senators here in Michigan, uh, Stabenow and Peters, to include in the budget reconciliation package some pathways to citizenship. Mm. And as you may or may not have heard in your audience, the parliamentarian issued a ruling that has been very problematic for us in that uh, she said that green cards are not properly in front of budget, which is ludicrous because it's all about being able to work. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So I'm super, super passionate about continuing to pressure Congress to get something that needs to be done. This is the closest we've been in 30 years to actually helping the approximate 11 million people in this country 
who work really hard and contribute to society and many of whom were brought here as children. Mm -hmm. And this is what they consider home. Mm -hmm. We have a national coalition called We Are Home. Mm -hmm. Like we are already home. We don't need to be deported. We're home. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I'm, uh, I did a press conference here in Detroit yesterday in front of the ICE headquarters on Jefferson, which anybody who knows Detroit knows that's the main drag along the river. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we had a, wo a woman talk about her experience having her husband deported and the post-traumatic stress on the children. And so I'm just really on fire to be getting this done. We're going to be doing across the country, uh, various immigration reform groups are going to be doing actions uh, to keep, keep the pressure up. Yeah. So. In your opinion, because I know that you've been, you've been working with civil rights for a long time. Yeah. In your opinion, what is the main or the major roadblock that you find that you come across whenever you're pushing towards anything that has to do with, with immigration? Immigration, I would say fear. Mm. Fear of what? What are people fearing? Hey, thanks for listening. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and I help entrepreneurs and small businesses go from mediocre to magnificent by transforming their cultures to be more equitable and inclusive. To find out how we can work together, go to diversitydish.com, where you'll find my consulting, coaching, and speaker information. Diversitydish.com. I look forward to working with you. I think there's um, several kinds of fear. Mm. I think that particularly white America is uh, very shielded from what is being done to people in our name. True. As we the people. Uh, we don't see what uh, the steps involved in a deportation process are in entail. Right. And so we don't see the trauma that the children experience. Mm -hmm. And frankly, although it feels a bit voyeuristic or, uh, you know, exhibitionist, I almost think that we need to get to that level. Mm -hmm. we, we need to get to that gut level that, uh, white America just becomes completely disgusted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think the fear is that, you know, by acknowledging uh, all the folks that are here without documents, we are like s somehow giving up some of our power or <laughs> our, you know, we are diluting our own citizenship or we are um, paving the way to be quote unquote overrun. Right. You know? by uh, the huddled masses, as it says on the Statue of Liberty, who right. seek a better life here. Right. And uh, we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to deal with the facts. Um, mm -hmm. There's this presumption that Im immigrants are a huge burden on our, well, our social welfare system, which is right. utter nonsense. Right. <laughs> they pay taxes into the system. The Social Security would probably right. be broke without immigrants immigrants paying yeah. taxes and they'll never see that money mm -hmm. you know a right. hundred billion dollars yeah that uh, they put in and yeah yep uh and so it's it's ludicrous for us to be making that kind of an argument uh there's a lot of folks out there who you know are really concerned about the white race being 
somehow diluted or mixed. Um, uh, there's a lot of, I, I know it sounds funny, but there's a lot of white folks out there that are worried about stuff like that. And it stirs up their fear. This is where yes. the fear, fear mongering comes in and getting yes. people all riled up about our way of life disappearing. Right. Um, right. And, and my view is we're all children of God. We're all created in the image of God. And, and you folks can't mm-hmm. see me, but I've got my clerical collar on because mm-hmm. uh, I thought we, this was video and that's mm-hmm. fine. I believe that we're all created in the image of God and, and God made us different for a reason to, mm-hmm. to it's partly to help us learn how to love and care for one another right. and recognize our common humanity mm-hmm. and that our humanity is strengthened by our diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It would be so boring if we were all exactly the same. It would be it, incredibly boring. <laughs> it certainly would be. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think that's the the primary motivator is fear of loss, fear of the unknown, fear by misunderstanding and misinformation. Right. Um, and, and fear, I think, is really one of the most primal emotions that we all experience as human beings. Yes. And when we are afraid, we can be driven to do things that are out of character. Yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we are afraid for a loved one who might be in mortal danger, there's no telling what we would do. Mm-hmm. It's part of our instinct to protect those we love. Right. And, and when it's when it's misplaced like this, it you know, it gets ugly. It does. It does. And, you know, my my question is always, how do we mitigate this fear? How do we how do we change the narrative how do we change the things that that create this fear within people i mean there are certain fears that that i know that will be much harder to uproot than others but how Mm. do we even begin to mitigate this fear uh it's an excellent question and i think that the most important way to mitigate fear is to get to know people who are different from us yes to be willing to let the walls of isolation down yes. to invite uh, dialogue. You know, in uh, World War I, there was a, a ceasefire mm-hmm. during one of the Christmases of the four years. I can't, I can't remember which one. And so the German side and the English side set down their weapons and they had soccer matches. And it was a 20, I think it was 24-hour ceasefire. Mm-hmm. And the men got to know each other on the two sides. And then after the ceasefire ended, uh, they didn't want to shoot each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, if you get to know somebody for a half hour, it's a lot harder to shoot them kind of thing. Right. And so the uh, British leaders were getting upset with the men because they were firing their ammunition into the sky. Mm. You know, cause they were told you must fire your weapons. So they fired their weapons, but they you know, fired the ammo so that it wouldn't hit anybody. Right. And I think it's a super important lesson to us about how, you know, these are soldiers who are set in two lines facing each other and they're supposed to annihilate each other. Right. And after a a short period of time, they didn't want to do that anymore. Right. 
And that's yeah. something to be said for people in the trenches too, because sometimes our leadership is pitting us against each other when we could solve many of these problems in the trenches, as it were, just by getting to know people who differ from us. Yes, right. I'll also put this in my show notes, Sadie, but um, I've got a link to a civil discourse program that is free, that is offered by the Episcopal Church. Yes. And it's a way to learn how to talk to people with whom you disagree in a Mm -hmm. civil way, but still have firm conversations, Mm -hmm. still, you know, get your point across, but, you know, don't end up in a fistfight. Right. (laughs) So, uh, and there's a program, there's a track for individual study and there's a track for group study. I recommend doing this with a group. I think it's more effective, but they're both really good. And it's a five-week program and you can do it in your own time. I love and it. So, we'll definitely put it in the show yeah, notes. I, I think that's, uh, we need to equip ourselves better to deal with difference because after all, we live in a democracy mm-hmm. and inherent in democracy is to have differing ideas. Mm-hmm. When we learn how to dialogue with others more effectively, mm-hmm. we can make tremendous progress. Because almost always, we can find some kind of common ground. Yes. It's interesting. When I do bias trainings and I ask a question, I often ask a question, write down who you see or what the first things that come to your mind when I say college professor. And usually it's a white, old male. Old white guy. Old white guy. Yeah. Uh, You know, right down. Yeah. <laughs> Write down who you see when I say a medical doctor. And usually, again, it's a, it could be a middle-aged younger, but it's still a white male. Mm-hmm. And when, uh, and in one of my training sessions, a woman said, no, I didn't, I didn't see that at all. She said, you know, for the doctor, she said, I saw a female. I said, do you have a female doctor? And she said, yes. And I said, and that's the difference. When you expose yourself to something that is, that is, that can be different, it widens your view of what that, that role could, Mm -hmm. of who can fit into that role. So Mm -hmm. instead of seeing those things that are traditional or that we've been, you know, socialized to see, we see it wider. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, it, it corresponds with exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. If you spend a few minutes with someone who is different than you, who thinks different than you, looks different than you, believes different than you, you will find some kind of common ground. Mm-hmm. And that will be the jumping off point to being able to, of course, mitigate the fear that you might have about said person. I absolutely agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I think another way is for to learn a foreign language. Oh, yeah. Learn a foreign language, and this is now. I love languages, so I'll uh, I'll be transparent there about my bias. <laughs> a little bit bias. <laughs> when, when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to take Latin, so it really uh, prepared me to, you know, to be able to learn Romance languages pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was taking French, and since then, I've studied Italian, and I'm learning Spanish. Mm-hmm. And one of the beautiful, beautiful things about learning a language is that typically in those lessons, you learn about the culture. Yes. You learn about all kinds of things, including cuisine mm-hmm. and uh, 
I know we're going to talk about that later. And, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you learn all about the society. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it really, really gives you, like you said, if people stay very closed in their own little community mm-hmm. and they don't mean anybody different than they are, then it, be, it makes it, and I think this is kind of, is legitimate. It makes it much harder to understand people who are different from you if you never have that exposure. Right. You never have to interact with people who are different than you. So you never have to figure out how to adjust or how to relate Mm -hmm. to those people. Right. But if you do, when you do, it gives you, it it opens that that perspective up Mm -hmm. just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I see it all the time. Yeah. And, and it also, when you expose yourself to other people from different places and experiences and cultures, it causes you to reflect on your own experience. It yes. causes you to ask the big questions, the meaning-making questions about life that we all wrestle with. Yes. I'll, give, I'll give you an example. I went to an ecumenical seminary initially meaning that several different denominations were represented by the students, as opposed to going to a seminary that's run by a specific denomination, because I did Mm -hmm. both. Mm -hmm. The ecumenical experience was super, super important for me because it taught me about the differences and to appreciate where different denominations are coming from and, and what distinguishes them which makes ecumenical work with other uh, leaders, other ordained leaders, much, a much more enriched experience. Yeah. Because I get where they're coming from. Right. But also it made me evaluate about, okay, why am I seeking ordination in the Episcopal church? What about my tradition is it that is really resonating with me? Right. What about our tradition? Do I wish we could borrow, you know, from here and there. Yeah. <laughs> those are those were fundamental and very important questions and it only happened because I was able to be in an environment where I could talk to my classmates and find out about them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was it was awesome. And then when I went to an Episcopal school to finish that was a great experience too because I was allowed to become more rooted in my own tradition and a tradition that tradition that I appreciated better. Yes. After, after that exposure. Yes. I think that what you just said was so important. The, a, the ability to appreciate your culture, yourself, your tradition mm-hmm. through the experiences have, having been exposed to the experiences of others and understanding theirs, but still being proud of and rooted in your tradition. Mm -hmm. I think that it's so important because when we learn more about other people, we also learn a whole lot more about ourselves. No question about how we react. We learn about what we can or cannot accept. We learn a lot about ourselves Mm -hmm. when interacting with people, especially people who are different than us. Mm -hmm. That's very important. You are a reverend now. But you've also been a civil rights attorney. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, well, I really have to ask her <laughs> where and how did 
how did you get into becoming a civil rights attorney and then turning around and becoming a reverend? So basically, I'm asking you to tell us your life story. Okay. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, rewind the tape <laughs> to the late 70s when I was coming of age. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a church kid. I was always, always very active in church. I was in the choir and we traveled and we did, we did all kinds of stuff. And it was a very important time in my life because my parents went through a bad divorce and these folks, my youth group and whatnot, really became a second family. And I had a place to hang out and stay out of trouble. You know, my mom had to work and in my faith, my mother had a strong, strong faith and very much bestowed that on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started realizing, I started coming out. To myself and I realized oh and my this was not something that we ever talked about we never talked about sexuality or homosexuality or sexual orientation yeah. uh, in, in those years as mm-hmm. I was coming of age I knew the passages in the bible that I felt you know were condemning me mm. and and I sensed that I was going to have to make a choice mm-hmm between whether I wanted to be a Christian or whether I wanted to be myself. Wow. And, and so, and I had periods of s- suicidal thoughts. It, mm-hmm. it was a very intense time for me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I, I sensed a call to ordained ministry. From the mm. time I was about 15, I, I felt like I was being called. But then mm-hmm. as I came out, and this was a time when you didn't see a lot of uh, women ordained. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, the ecumenical school that I mentioned, there was a whole bunch of us women uh, seeking ordination in the Episcopal church Mm -hmm. who were in our forties and fifties because, uh, you know, the the opportunity finally had arisen. Mm -hmm. So uh, I decided that there was no way I was going to be able to get ordained uh, once I came out. So I, I uh, studied law. Mm. Uh, I had a wonderful American history professor who said, you should think about going into law. I think you'd really like it. I think you'd be very good at it. And so I decided to do that. And then, of course, because I wanted to be in a helping profession initially, uh, I became a civil rights attorney. And I was representing the LGBT community um, at the time in custody battles, child custody battles, because Mm. at that time, Sadie, People were presumed unfit right? just because of sexual orientation, regardless right. of parenting skills. Uh, and it, it was uh, much easier at the time. And of course, then AIDS had come into yeah. the fore. Yeah. And there was this presumption if it was a gay dad that the kids were going to get AIDS. And it was a mess. It was mm-hmm. a mess. So I did that work. I did. Uh, I secured the first AIDS Uh, supplemental social security benefits for uh, a gay man who was dying. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I think that did a lot for him uh, to win that. Uh, He died shortly after it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was doing all all manner of things, uh, some business law and also criminal defense law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then as as I got older, I got increasingly more frustrated at the lack of ability to argue the gospel in court and expect to win, (laughs) you know, know, like compassion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So 
I finally listened to the call. Uh, I was in my late 40s. Yeah. And I felt the Holy Spirit was still calling me to seek ordination. And so I did it. And I went to school here at the, in, at the Ecumenical Theological Seminary in Detroit. And then I finished in California at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, which is an Episcopal seminary. Right. And, um, and then I had my first uh, church in Southwest Detroit. And I have to tell you, I just became completely appalled. And as a criminal defense attorney and all the gnarly stuff that I've seen in my legal career, I had no words for how horrible I, how horrible I thought what our laws were allowing us to do to human beings and separating families, often with uh, little children who are American citizens and should not be treated like that as citizens. Right. And so um, I went back to school and got, I studied public or political theology. You'll hear it called both things at Pacific School of Religion, which is a sister school to where I finished my MDiv. Right. Wow. And that's, that's how it happened. But there's a lot of crossover wow. between uh, being a priest and being an attorney because you are reading and interpreted, interpreting text yeah. Uh, and then you speak on it, you give a, an, you know, oral argument or an opening or closing mm-hmm. uh, argument, or you preach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're taking language and you're uh, interpreting it for others and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, making persuasive arguments. Well, hopefully they're persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they're persuasive. Yes, of course. Yes. I, and, you know, I never really thought about the correlation or the yeah you know the the this the sameness between being an attorney and being a, a, a preacher but yeah I can I can see it when you say it and while I don't I'm not likening myself to him I can give you a very famous example of somebody who started out as a lawyer and then became a priest and that was Martin mm-hmm. Luther mm-hmm. yeah it's very interesting and I think that I and I honestly think that the best divinity right the best preachers are those who look at both the law as well as the Bible through a lens of compassion. Mm. I think that a lot of times that is missing. It's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you said, it's like you couldn't, you know, you couldn't uh, argue (laughs) in the court, you know, the, the, the Bible or the, you know, the text and, and really it's, it's more of compassion. You can in, but I think, and I spoken about compassion before because compassion, I think people get compassion mixed up with empathy. Empathy is feeling what someone else might be feeling. Mm -hmm. Whereas compassion is seeing that there's something wrong and being compelled to do something about that thing feeling that I want to help in Mm -hmm. that regard. And I think that because we don't know that definition, we don't really understand what it means to be compassionate Mm -hmm. to people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I find your story so interesting. Yeah. Because you had to, you had to pivot. You essentially had to pivot away from what you wanted to do just to come back to what it was you were called to do Mm -hmm. um, because you had to choose. And that is such, that was very powerful. You had to choose between the church 
or yourself, or that's how you felt in mm-hmm. any case. Mm-hmm. So within the church now, so as, as you are a minister now and you are a lesbian woman, how do you, how do you work that into the, the, the church or the help people within the church understand that these two things are not mutually exclusive, that these things can coexist and that this is, you know, this is, this is God. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, an amazing question. Well, first of all, I think for any of us, uh, I was speaking with a, a young gay man who ended up getting booted out of seminary because he was gay. And while I'm sorry he went through that pain, I think we all need to be careful about, you know, where we want to apply ourselves. I was very strategic uh, in wanting to become an Episcopal priest because I knew the church had settled these issues for me. Mm. And I applied for ordination with a bishop that I knew would not disqualify me because of that. Mm -hmm. So that's super important. And I think that's a responsibility that uh, we all need to be sure that we're going somewhere that's going to be safe for us. Mm-hmm. And I'm not criticizing this young man in mm-hmm. any way as, and I've actually offered to help him, you know, find a place where they would not only accept him, but they would appreciate his gifts and contributions. Right. So that's the first part. And then uh, Henry Nowen wrote a book many years ago. He was a Roman Catholic priest and mystic called The Wounded Healer. Mm. And it's about taking your woundedness from life and repurposing your learning and sometimes even the hurt or whatever to help others Mm -hmm. find a better way. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that although I'm white I still mm-hmm. have had to navigate the world as a woman mm-hmm. and as a lesbian also. So mm-hmm. my whiteness, my education, my social location, all of those things have been positives for me on those various axes, education, mm-hmm. gender, race. Uh, race. But at the same time, I've had to navigate this axis of disprivilege Uh, being a lesbian. And it has given me a lot of insight into what it's like to be African-American trying to survive in this country. Mm -hmm. I in no way know what it's like to be black here, Mm -mm. but I have a better understanding Mm -hmm. of what it's like to be treated as less than. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what it's like to be Latino here. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what it's like to look over my shoulder because of my immigration status. Right. Mm -hmm. But because of those experiences that I've had navigating my own axis of disprivilege, it Mm -hmm. has given me a more open heart. We talked about that earlier. Right. To understand what it's like when you are automatically treated less than because of who you are. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that I've placed myself in a welcoming and loving church that um, not only accepts me, but values me. Mm -hmm. And I am rechanneling that wounded healer to help others understand what it's like to be less than. And I am Mm -hmm. especially equipped to talk to a white audience. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Yeah. I can, I can, I understand that. Okay. I understand that. Um, especially because, you know, um, when you, you say the wounded healer. So I had, uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2017. So hmm. I'm still essentially a cancer patient. Once a cancer patient, usually always a cancer patient. Yeah. And that was one avenue that I didn't ever understood. But then once I did go through that process, my desire was to help others, those who have gone through that process, and also to help others not have to go through that process before they came to the realization of what they had to offer, who they are, and 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 what they do, you know, that sort of thing in this world, mm-hmm. the difference that they can make in this world. Because, you know, one of the things that my mom always taught told me growing up was you don't have to make the same mistakes as your friends. <laughs> you can yeah. learn from your friends' mistakes and right. not make them. Yeah. Right. And so for me, I've always felt that I don't have to learn. I don't have to make the mistakes in order to learn. I can learn from others' mistakes, but I can also teach from the mistakes that I have made because I'll mm-hmm. make my own mistakes. Yep. But I can also help people from that space mm-hmm. um, learn as a person who works with equity, inclusion, social justice, um, people say to me, well, how do you talk to someone who is just really adamant about not, not, not hearing, not hearing, not hearing? I say that person's not ready and it's not my job to make them ready. Mm-hmm. It is simply my job to share the information and then mm-hmm. hope that at some point in time, it's going to implant itself and then it will grow something. Mm-hmm. But I cannot, I can't expend my energy thinking that it is my job to change someone's mind or change someone's heart or change someone's whole life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, trajectory, you know, simply because by virtue of who I am and what mm-hmm. I do. Right. So, so I have a, I have a very in- interesting question that comes up for me. Before you ask, I just like to throw something out there too, is whenever we're speaking with somebody who, let's say they're super anti-gay. Yes. Okay. Um, I was a member of a church and uh, we had a a pastor in town who was saying some very unpleasant things. Mm. And uh, one of my friends at the church wanted to get into a discussion with him. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, don't bother. And he was so surprised that I said that. (laughs) And I said, don't bother. He's not going to listen to you. Generally, the only time that we can engage in a paradigm shift, which is what what this is, is when somebody very dear to us is affected in some way by whatever it is. Right. And then we have to make a choice. We have mm-hmm. to decide whether to, for example, maintain our own embedded faith, the faith that we were taught, the faith that was given to us, or uh, move from that to a place that would be more accepting and more uh, open so that it doesn't create a loss. Mm-hmm. But most people don't like paradigm shifts because mm-hmm. you have to, you, your whole, the whole way you approach the world, your ideology mm-hmm. changes. Yes. And that's incredibly scary. We talked about, you know, I think yes. fear is what keeps us from moving forward as a society. And this is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't try to talk to people who are adamantly anti-gay, for, for example. For one thing, they have the right to their opinion. Mm-hmm. 
And you're right. It's not up to any of us to make somebody change your mind. Although I don't know how you would actually do that. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> you know, you just have to let life move forward. And maybe at some point they're going to have an opportunity for transformation. Right. Maybe. Maybe. But, no. you know, paradigm shifts uh, are pretty rare. I mean, I had to go through one myself. Mm. Uh, to accept myself and believe that I could be a, a lesbian and a Christian and a priest. Right. And yeah. in, in civil discourse, you know, they teach you, you got to, you got to meet somebody where they are. Right. You, you right. can't, you can't bludgeon them. You have to, you have to appreciate where they're coming from as hard as that may be or obnoxious yeah. or obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you have to recognize because that's how you recognize the personhood of this individual. Right. Yeah. So there. So, so you definitely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. You do. We have to meet people where they are and understand um, whether or not they're even open to, or they have any um, mm-hmm. incentive to, because, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds, you know, when you say that something has to happen to someone that they love or something that's close to them, that's, mm-hmm. that's an incentive. Do they have mm-hmm. an incentive to make a difference, to, mm-hmm. to be different, to, right. to think differently, to right. allow different thoughts to take hold? Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So there's a question that I have that I, that I kick around a lot in my head um, because I too grew up Christian. I don't really call myself a Christian so much, but um, there, of course, you know, it's embedded. So there are a lot of things that, that I think about. And one of the things that I think about is this idea that, that God created humans in its image. But in the Bible, it's always he created man mm-hmm. in his image. And I go... But I feel as though if we are all created by God, all in their image, then he is not a he or a she, but a they. Mm-hmm. In that we can only understand a God figure in the limited understanding that we have of sex, mm-hmm. or, you know, assigned at birth sex. Yes. Um, but I feel that God is much bigger than that. And that mm-hmm. because there is fluidity, because um, we're, we're all fluid, whether we want to uh, acknowledge it or not, mm-hmm. because there are, there, there, there are transgender, because, because there all these things exist, I think that they all are God. Mm-hmm. What is your thought process or what is your feeling on that? Well, one of the things that we're taught in seminary is that all, lang- all language is metaphorical mm-hmm. with respect to God. There's no way that human language, any human language, can uh, sufficiently or fully describe mm-hmm. the divine creator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've assigned gender and so forth as a means of trying to communicate Mm -hmm. now the world has primarily been run for the last 5,000 years by patriarchal societies right 
And theologian Mary Daly said, when God is male, male is God. (laughs) So naturally, I think uh, the patriarchy has ascribed these uh, pronouns. Mm -hmm. And really, that's what they are, pronouns. Mm -hmm. To an entity that probably, in my view, extends so far beyond gender or anything else that we could as human beings can possibly imagine mm-hmm. that you know it's um it's kind of almost pointless to try and codify it or you know f- find the word and how would we know if we found it <laughs> how, you know, how, how would we know if we found how, it? how in the world would we find it our our faith is born of experience yes And so, for example, when I give a blessing, Mm -hmm. unless it's during the mass, when I have to use the language in the prayer book, I say creator, redeemer, and sustainer, Mm -hmm. or, you know, or comforter for for the Holy Spirit. And I believe, I believe that the Holy Spirit is more female than male Mm -hmm. because she's the comforter. She's the nurturer. Mm. I'm ascribing my understanding of maternal love and so on Mm -hmm. to to this entity that Jesus left us, the paraclete, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit, after Mm he ascended. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have no problem assigning gender to Jesus because he walked Mm -hmm. the earth as a man, Mm -hmm. although we we rightfully wonder what his chromosomal makeup is, Mm -hmm. since uh, it looks like there was probably no Y chromosome. So what does that make him? We Mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Mm So I think that uh, some people feel very, very comfortable uh, having, relating to God or referring to God using gendered pronouns as a means of establishing a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Um, And it feels comforting, you know, to call God father, protector, Abba, those kinds of male attributes. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. For my father, I ascribe protection and provision and those kinds of things. My mother, it's it was uh, nurture and um, care. Right. Mm-hmm. I understand that. I don't, yeah. in my head, I never really think of God as a gender. Right. Right. Uh, the Trinity, okay, the Trinity is, you know, maybe balanced by God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit the feminine force. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, And and I think for purposes of just, you know, navigating our daily lives, for me, it doesn't matter. Right. God is God. That's the word we've picked. Right. That's the word I'm going with. The operation of the Trinity is very important to us. The creator protector force, the, the redeeming force and the sustaining force they work together and they they're an example to us of the importance of community and caring for each other. Right. So the Trinity is a strong concept, although it doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere. It's, dog, <laughs> you know, right. it's, do, it's dogmatic. Right. It's what theologians have put together as our best understanding of the operation of this almighty creator. Right. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people stop and think about it though that much i think no i i think it's true there's a 
I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, one of the, our first martyr of the church, Stephen, is stoned to death. And um, out of the cloud comes a voice of God and a dove of the Holy Spirit mm. and, and Jesus. And it's a snapshot, if you will, of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's that's sort of where we get the idea. But right. uh, unless Every you know, Trinity. unless you know your acts really well, it's kind of lost. And right. people think it's in the Bible. The first time I preached that, nobody likes preaching on Trinity Sunday. We all hate it. It's the, <laughs> <laughs> it's the, not hate it, but we're, it's yeah, the Sunday, it's, it's it's the Sunday after Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a junior priest, you're going to give that sermon to your junior priest because everybody's got to do it at least once. And um, <laughs> because you're trying to explain all this. And yeah. uh, people, people got upset with me when I said, you know, the Trinity isn't actually uh, in a doctrine the Bible. drawn specifically from verses in the Bible. Right. Uh, and they got a little upset. Right. It's very interesting when you when you challenge those things that people have heard all their mm-hmm. lives or mm-hmm. thought all their lives. And then mm-hmm. you say, but that's not there. And they say, yeah, it is <laughs> like, OK, show yeah. me. Right. Well, people think the doctrine of separation of church and state is in the Constitution. And it is not written anywhere in the Constitution. That's a quote from Thomas Jefferson in a letter. Right. But it's got Americans pretty confused. Yeah, I yeah. think I think we're confused about a lot of things because we're not, you know, if we get into our education system, mm-hmm. we're not taught the things that would matter for us to know and understand mm-hmm. so that we can actually move forward in a more positive manner. I, I feel that yeah. we are, we're, we're not, we're not given information as it happened. We're given information as we wish it had happened. Oh, or, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> or as we as we think it's more comfortable mm-hmm. to share. Yeah. And that is detrimental to, to everybody. Yeah. You know, and when I say, you know, there's so many things, there's so many times where I say to people, I say this, I, this, 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 this idea of race, this racism that we have within this country is detrimental to everyone. Oh yes. And if you don't understand that, you're going to live within this paradigm that it's only detrimental to the oppressed and it is those who are most oppressed by the system. Mm-hmm. And it is not the, everyone loses when we're not being compassionate to each other, when we're not, um, when we're not taught the right information, when we don't know our history that we're going mm-hmm. to inevitably repeat because we're, we're afraid to look at it and we don't want to, to, we don't want to make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, people have to be uncomfortable because mm-hmm. a, a, a large swath of the population is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so those who are refusing to look at their part in this whole thing are, are causing the discomfort of others. So they need to be uncomfortable in uncovering it mm-hmm. so it's we we're not learning right we we go to school but we're not learning anything well you remember i don't know about you but when i took civics american government class 
it was the spring of my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, now how many seniors in their last semester of high school are really paying attention all that much? Just just in general. Just, just in, in general. general. Yeah. And and our teacher was an old white guy who had taught this class for about 400 years <laughs> and he was uh, it was like listening to paint dry. It was it was awful. And <laughs> You know, this process had gone on for countless decades uh, with all the seniors springing forth from my high school, finding American government to be the most boring thing that, you know, ever happened to anybody. Yes. And that is a problem. That is a problem. We need to be taking our kids to our state capitals and watching lawmakers. We need to be visiting them, you know, our representatives in, in chambers. We need to be you know, uh, really, really looking at what the First Amendment provides us. Mm-hmm. We don't do any of those things. At least I'm now my, you know, well, experience it's not, is- Yeah, it's not, we don't do them because it's not, it's not part of our zeitgeist. It's not part of our fabric, right? right. It's not part of, to get into it. It's mm-hmm. not part of what we do. It's just out there. right. I mean, every time I learn something new or more deeply when it comes to our history, I think to myself, my God, that's so interesting. I've, I've learned it because I've chosen to learn it. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've learned it because I've put myself in the way of the mm-hmm. learning and I've gone, wow, how incredibly interesting, but it's not something that is made interesting or, or made to be dug into further. No one Mm -hmm. wants to dig into it. It's like, oh my God, I hate history. Can I just get through history? Can I get through it? Mm -hmm. I just want to get through it. What's my grade? Awesome. I passed. I'm out of here, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. it. As if it doesn't affect anything, but it does. Right. I agree. I agree. We need to instill in our young people uh, a lifelong uh, quest to learn. Learn. Lifelong quest to learn. Yes. I will be learning until the day I die or shortly there, shortly before. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's one of the great pleasures of life, really, if if you really think about it and, you know, constantly having the opportunity to expose yourself to new ideas and discoveries and all of it. So, yeah. Discoveries, people, events, all of it. Mm -hmm. It's, and languages, as you say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's all fascinating. It provides a foundation for all of us to understand each other's humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, a lot of times, we fail to connect to people's humanity. Yes. Um, well, I think that's absolutely what's been going on with our immigration policies. Yes. You start putting children in cages and you need to really be looking at who you are as a country. Yes. And individually as a person, if you are okay with that, if that doesn't bother you, you Mm -hmm. really should ask yourself, how is it that you can look at children in cages away from their parents and not be bothered by that? You have turned those people into numbers, uh, numbers, chattel, whatever it is that makes you comfortable with that happening. So that you can cope. So that you can 
sleep at night mm-hmm. yep. so that you can, you know, walk away. And at times I also think it's, well, those would never be my children. So I don't really care. Yeah. And honestly, you know, who knows, who knows, you know, the way it, it, it's just, it, it, it blows my mind <laughs> and mm-hmm. it hurts my heart. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it, it, it brings up all kinds of questions mm-hmm. um, as to how people, because I did read something years and years ago that said people cannot treat people a certain way unless they can justify it in their minds, mm-hmm. right? Yes. We cannot mm-hmm. put children in cages unless there is some way for us to justify that mm-hmm. those kids need to be in those cages. We mm-hmm. cannot kill people. We cannot treat people as chattel unless mm-hmm. we justify somehow mm-hmm. that it's okay. Right. Like the Holocaust. Yes. How do we justify? We just, we have to find a way to justify it mm-hmm. in order to do it. Right. Because if we cannot justify it, our, our conscience mm-hmm. will not allow us to do right. it. And it can also be as sim- simple as a as an emotion like fear, because yes. typically cruelty is born of fear. Yes. Right. What's that saying? Hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yes. So so um, you can you can also put in there fearful people hurt people. Mm-hmm. You know? people yes. Just, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty much interchangeable. Mm-hmm. So you have a book coming up. Yes. Actually, I'm working on two books. The The one that's going to come out first is a sort of, uh, it's a survivor guide for LGBTQ Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part memoir and it's part uh, dealing with the biblical passages uh, that are typically used to humiliate and demean us. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, meant to be a, a survival guide, as you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I've it's got it basically, up. basically, kind of to help people understand that they don't have to choose between being Christian and being themselves. That is correct. Right? Like you felt you had to. So mm-hmm. it's more to bring it together and say mm-hmm. you can be all of these things because all of these things can be you. Nice. I like that. That's awesome. You're free to use it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm, I'm also writing another book in anticipation of the midterms of 2022 in November Mm. um, to help people become more active faith-based advocates. Mm. So. Right. I think that there are a lot of Christians out there who are giving Christianity a very bad name. (laughs) You think so? (laughs) You know, Good God almighty. <laughs> and, what, a, what a disaster. Oh, and you know, I, and there are certain people, you know, my parents are Christian and they give me hope because, you know, they, because they, they, they're tapped into their humanity mm-hmm. and their compassion. Um, people like you give me hope mm-hmm. because you're tapped into your humanity and your compassion and you're out there making a difference, fighting the good fight. And so I very much appreciate you because if not for you, I would say, you know, let's take all the Christians and put them in the, in the toilet right now, because 
I'm pretty sure that they are not reading or understanding or hearing the what there's what they what they need and or or um, uh, professing or acting on what they're supposed to be doing. So thank mm-hmm. you so much for this, your presence. <laughs> this has been thank you thank you for your kind words. I really I really appreciated it. I needed to hear it. Uh, this is not easy work and, uh, yeah. you know, kind of flying the plane and building it as we fly across. So it's challenging. And so I, I really appreciate it. And I have to say, this is his, this has been one of the most enjoyable interviews that I've done so far. And I want to thank you. And oh, so I want to thank you for your dedication to uh, extolling the virtues of diversity and encouraging people to get out there and you know, shake it up a little bit and learn something yeah. about someone or something that you don't know about right now. Yeah. Thank you. I do. I think that it's so important for us to do that. I mm-hmm. do. I do. So before, for, before we go, um, mm-hmm. two things, one is, is there anything else that you would like to bring forth that maybe we haven't touched upon, but that you feel is really important for you to put out there? Or maybe you could share a little bit about um, how people can work with you or the work that you do. Sure, absolutely. Um, So my website is politicaltheologymatters.com. I'll say it again, politicaltheologymatters.com. I'm going to put it in the show notes. Yeah. And I'll send the show, all this information to you in the show notes. And my email is Marsha, M-A-R-C-I-A at politicaltheologymatters.com. You can find me on Instagram at Doc Ledford and also Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. It's just my name, Marsha Ledford. So you can engage with me in any of those ways. I'm available for um, speaking engagements and uh, consultations and Uh, teaching courses on how to become a more active faith-based advocate. So I'd be delighted to hear from your audience and uh, look into how I can customize something that will help your group um, or you uh, become more engaged in our civic process. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So Marsha, we've had this incredible conversation and I thank you so much. But before we end our conversation today, I have to ask you the question that I ask all my guests Mm -hmm. so that we can end on a food note, Yeah, which is the uh, great equalizer, the great coming together. Everybody Mm -hmm. eating together is a great way to meet and learn about people. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite dish? Well, I love uh, my wife, Linda's spaghetti and meatballs. Oh, delicious. And uh, I make a fabulous garlic bread. I take a baguette and I slice it almost all the way through. And then I melt butter with garlic, chopped up fresh garlic and pour all that in and then wrap it up in foil at 450 for 20 minutes. And um, it's uh, sinful eating, but boy, is it good. (laughs) Oh, and that's uh, amazing. Know, and a nice, healthy salad. Yes, on the side. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. This has Marcia. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at patreon.com backslash Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget, 
diversitydish.com. I'd love to work with you. See you soon.